Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. And this program is uh, being broadcast around the period of the holiday of Sukkot, which means, uh, in English, they call it the Feast of Tabernacles. And most of the newspapers and all the languages here, of course, call attention to this holiday, and they try to put some meaning into it that can be expressed in a few words in an editorial or in a column in the paper. So I took a look at the Jerusalem Post, and I want to quote some of the things they said because I feel that they're important, and uh, I'll paraphrase most of them, but I'd like the listeners to understand how the thinking is here. Uh, Sukkot is uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is a special time. During the holiday, uh, temporary booths can be found everywhere. In our backyard between the apartment houses, there are at least a half a dozen booths which uh, supply a sukkah, a booth for the members of people living in the house. And of course, a lot of, uh, if not most of the synagogues have a sukkah, which can be used by anybody, including people who do not have a sukkah in their own apartment or their own home. And generally, one of the nicest things about sukkot is that it comes at a time of the year when the weather is generally very good. It's not hot summertime, and it's not really the rainy season yet. And the purpose of these Sukkot, these little tabernacles, is to recall the way the children of Israel traveled the desert for 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. The One of the nicer traditions is to host guests in the Sukkah, bringing people together. Not only do you have your own guests, but if you live in an apartment house, you find yourself with other members of that apartment house who you probably don't speak to during the year. I often wonder how people who live in high-rise apartments really get to know their neighbors at all because uh, maybe they meet them in the elevator going up and down, but it's not like a neighborhood where you sit down on a bench or you walk the street and you meet neighbors. Living in a high-rise apartment, I think, is sort of... uh, uh, an act against neighborliness, but that's a personal opinion. Now, celebrating Sukkot in Israel is part of the natural rhythm of life. Uh, although it might rain briefly during the holiday, it's usually warm, and uh, Israelis eat in the sukkah. Some stay in the sukkah to uh, read or to invite friends. Some people actually sleep in their sukkah. Uh, interesting enough, at the end of the festival, we recite the prayer for rain. When uh, Passover, six months later, at the beginning of the festival, we recite the prayer for uh, dew. You, you recite the prayer for rain at the end of the Sukkot holiday. You don't want to uh, ask for rain at the beginning because the Lord might be good to us and send rain while we're sitting in the sukkah. So in the, the prayer for rain marks the change in the seasons, and it carries a moving message. The words are, who causes the wind to blow and the rain to fall. May it fall as a blessing and not as a curse. 
May it be for life and not for death. May it bring abundance and not famine. So it's a powerful reminder of our fragility and our vulnerability. And the same as the wording of the prayer, the holiday traditionally imparted in agricultural festival is, t is today the perfect time to consider nature and our role in protecting the environment. Uh, this year, it's the Sukkot that's uh, after the COVID-19 pandemic. And much of the world today is influenced by the havoc caused as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and uh, feelings of vulnerability are hard to avoid. The cost of fuel, the cost of energy, and the crisis in supplies of grain are very real here. Add to this dramatic and lethal climate phenomena, we have a war in Europe, which in one form or another affects everybody. These are the facts of life. So we in Israel have so far been spared the worst of the um, impact, but there's no reason for complacency. The fact that Israel's population continues to grow is a blessing, but it brings with it special challenges. The country needs to consider its policies wisely in every field, from construction, land use, to recreation and transport and energy, air quality, waste, avoiding marine pollution, protecting wildlife, and more. Now, by the way, since I mentioned Sukkot, uh, our, this is the time of the year between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot when the Bureau of Statistics publishes the latest statistics about the population. Uh, so interestingly enough, the, uh, back in 1947, when the United Nations General Assembly resolved to partition mandatory Palestine into two states, um, the, how many people lived here? They were going to divide it between the Jews and the Arabs. Uh, slightly more than a million people were assigned to live in the Jewish state. They were split between 630,000 Jews and about 400,000 non-Jews which means that the Jewish majority in 1948 was 63% of the population. Now, that was followed by the War of Independence, and uh, the uh, one of the most dramatic consequences of that war was the exodus, whether voluntarily or forced, of a large number of Arabs, including some from territories newly annexed to the state of Israel including the Galilee, the Negev, that's the south, and western Jerusalem. This placed a demographic balance in late 1948 on a more solid uh, grounds in terms of the Jewish majority. Now there were 717,000 Jews versus 156,009 Jews, which meant that the Jewish population was roughly 82%. So from 63% in 19, at the time of the creation of the state to 82% at the end of the War of Independence. Over time, the population of Israel has increased to just over 2 million in 1960, about 4 million in 1980, 6.5 million at the turn of the 21st century, 
and nine and a half million today, which is a tenfold increase within 75 years. Um, and no other country in the Western world, at least, has done such a thing. For example, population of Australia grew three times during this period. The United States became twice as large in population, France and England by one and a half times each. So where did this demographic growth come from? Well, it's an outcome of a unique combination. We had large waves of immigration, a process limited by a law of return to Jews and their relatives, and high birth rates, especially in the first decades of statehood, both among Jewish immigrant women from Asia and North Africa and among Muslim women. Nearly one-third of the total growth of the Jewish population is because of immigration. Natural increase accounts for the rest. There were times, however, until the 90s and again around the collapse of the Iron Curtain in the early 1990s, when immigration was paramount in the growth of the Jewish population. And most Jewish communities in areas of distress have emptied out Immigration has declined recently, has become a small component of the demographic dynamics of the Jewish population in Israel. In other words, immigration does not mean that much anymore in terms of the growth of the Jewish population. The, uh, it's interesting, if you look at it, Jewish uh, uh, demography has grown from two sources, immigration and birth fertility. The non-Jewish population gains only from fertility. So uh, the, uh, the Arab population in particular grew at a slightly faster pace. They had very high birth rates in the beginning. They used to be around 10 children per woman. Recently, however, these rates have come down Notably, Jews and non-Jews have very similar numbers of children today, which is three per women on the average. That's very interesting, by the way. You need 2.1 uh, children per woman in order to maintain the population level. Most of the countries in the world are below the replacement level. Israel, including both the Jews and the non-Jews, yes, the Arabs, have three above the replacement level. Accordingly, the ratio of Jews to non-Jews in the Israeli population has fallen slightly over the years. It's now 79% Jews versus 21% non-Jews. Israel is called, it's called the Jewish state, but 79% uh, of the people here are Jewish. And this takes into account all residents of Israel within the Green Line, uh, the Green Line was the line up until between 1948 and 1967, and this includes Eastern Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, and Jews who live in the West Bank. The Jewish population includes immigrants who are now mostly from the Soviet Union. A lot of them are not Jewish according to Jewish religious law, but they're entitled to immigrate to Israel under the law of return. They're also defined as people with no religion. If they're not collapsed into the majority group, the proportion of Jews in the current Israeli population 
is 74%. In other words, you don't count older nine Jews who are not Arabs or not Muslims. The, ge the geographical distribution of population has changed. This was driven by the geopolitical changes that followed the Six-Day War and the expansion of Jewish settlement into new areas. Some of the change in the population percentages uh, originate in the revisions of residential preferences accompanied by internal migration of the non-immigrant population. There's an uneven dispersion of immigrants and differential birth rates in, by towns and cities by level of religiosity. For example, the ultra-Orthodox grow at the greatest rate. Um, so it's noteworthy that the residents of Jewish settlement, settlements in what's called the West Bank today account for around 6% in the total Jewish population, which is interesting. There were, there, was no, no, there were no Jews in the West Bank in 1948 until 1967 when the area was controlled by the Jordanian government, and Jewish settlement actually didn't begin until the 1970s, and now the Jews living in that area are 6% of the total Jew population. Also, uh, in the early years of the state, people of, of Asian African origin, Jews from North Africa, for example, from Iraq, uh, were overrepresented in the areas outside the major cities. So, but today the Jewish population is much more ethnically balanced in all the regions. Uh, interesting enough, also around 7% of the Jewish population lived in Kibbutzim when Israel was established in 1948, 7%. Today it's down to 2.5% who live in Kibbutzim. And the Jews in Israel constituted a mere 6% of world Jewry in 1948. Today, in contrast, more than four out of every ten Jews in the world live in Israel. And in places like the United States, the Jewish community is, grow, is not growing, and also a lot of people are, are opting out of the Jewish community. And so Israel is becoming now 40% of the uh, Jewish population of the world. So the the two largest concentrations in the world, which are largely equal in number, are the Jewish population in Israel and the Jewish population in the United States. So we, the fact that our population continues to grow is really a blessing, but it brings all kinds of challenges. Uh, the country needs to consider its policies wisely in every field. In many cases, the topics are indeed being discussed, or you can even say uh, argued about, while missing the main point. Uh, take, for example, there are talks about natural gas. The use of natural gas instead of coal is a cleaner way of producing energy, but natural gas is a finite resource. The country needs to ensure that part of the profits from gas is spent on developing clean, affordable, renewable energy sources. The 
One of the sources that people like to push in Israel is solar sources, because with its country blessed with an abundance of free sunshine. The, um, but even this has to be done carefully, learning from the mistakes of others. Another example is the argument over whether or not to operate public transportation on Shabbat. That's a big argument here in Israel, particularly in the Tel Aviv area. I think in uh, public transportation in Jerusalem is, is a non-starter. I think most of the population would be opposed to it. But um, the, the, the uh, public transport is a major issue in other parts of the country. Having decent train service that runs at convenient hours needs to be a priority. And the idea is to encourage, it's a sort of an internal contradiction here. On one hand, you want to encourage use of public transportation instead of putting more and more cars on the congested roads. On the other hand, once you talk about having more public transport, you're going to get into the argument about whether the public transport, which would then be the major form of uh, transportation, uh, if we if we uh, build public transport and discourage people from using their cars, then public transport on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, will become an even greater issue. Now, Israel is leading and creative force and all kinds of interesting things, including, believe it or not, meatless meat and callous milk. While this should be encouraged, the condition of animals kept in the farming industry must be improved, which is really a moral imperative. But it's also essential from a health standpoint. You have to prevent the spread of all kinds of flus and other pandemics. The, uh, it's interesting also, by the way, desalination plants have helped prevent a water crisis in Israel despite the bad climate. One of the things that the... Um, the uh, leaders of Israel did it the early parts of the time of the state was to realize that water is a really basic issue and they did all kind built all kind of things to see to it that that water is plentiful and is clean the uh, so from a health standpoint it's very important so more care still has to be given to prevent pollution of natural water sources. In general, Israel has good environmental protection legislation, but it needs to be enforced. So these some of the issues worth considering in the beginning of the year. Uh, we have to worry not only about increasing our Jewish population, but we have to worry about increasing the quality of life, not only for ourselves, but for future generations. The... Uh, the, the people have become aware, must be brought aware of environmental problems. The, uh, but in particular, municipal and national leaders have to be aware of environmental problems. So at the moment, we're just three weeks away from the election. You don't see any of the parties campaigning, talking about the environmental issues but these issues are inseparable from both security and economics, and they should be beyond politics. So here we are at the beginning of the year. Israel at 75. Demographically, we're doing okay. question is, how are we treating our natural resources? How are we treating our environment?
It's a country with no natural resources, and therefore we have to be aware of the importance of saving the environment, not only to make life better, but for future generations. I'll be back after the break. Back with Jay Shapiro, since we're still at the beginning of the Jewish New Year, we have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, and after the end of Sukkot, we get back into the normal normality of life. But while we are still in this uh, first three weeks of the New Year, uh, I want to say a few things, most of which I I find others are agreeing with, so I want to share it with the uh, listeners. Uh, we have to review our situation. Uh, in truth, Israel is advancing its national agenda, agenda. Israel is a military and intelligence superpower. It is a force for regional stability, an anchor of sanity, and a very messy region of the world. Over the last couple of years, we've made agreements with a number of uh, Muslim countries that we had no idea 10 years ago that these things would actually come about. Uh, this is, could well be. We were forced out of our, of of the land of Israel 2,000 years ago by the Romans, and we have maintained our identity in 2,000 years. That's a claim that nobody, no other country, no other people can make. Israel is certainly winning in a historical perspective. The uh, Israel has ingathered exiles, Jews, from more than 70 countries, um, I think the, the actual number is more than 100, uh, where Jews lived, and we have developed a, a society that is modern, very modern. And there are those who say, and I think I agree with them, that this is the finest moment in Jewish history in the last 2,000 years. 150 years ago, no one could have imagined the positive situation we are in today. Jews have regained sovereignty in their homeland, and they made it blossom. Israel is a brave place where citizens sacrifice to defend the country, to maintain its morals, and to settle the land. Israel's youth are much more motivated than youth in other countries, and they are, we have problems, but there is a, a sense of responsibility for our destiny. And by the way, Israel is a great place to live and to raise a family. Healthcare and education are guaranteed rights. Average lifespan is 80 years. Average annual income is $40,000. And the average family size is 5.7 people. If you compare that to the crumbling Arab states around Israel or much of the failing West, we are in very good shape. Now you have to look also on a spiritual scale, a deeper scale. 
It can be said that the draw of divine proximity and the powerful magnetism of Jewish people and Jewish peoplehood makes for a robust Jewish identity in this country. Elsewhere around the world, Jewish identity is significantly challenged by all kinds of other cultures and all kinds of woke ideologies. Israel comes out way ahead of its Western counterparts, way ahead of its adversaries and detractors, and well beyond any point in centuries of Jewish history, and well positioned to overcome its many challenges. Now, there is no doubt Israel is still demonized in parts of the world that some prefer to ignore Israel's impressive achievement and instead assert a narrative of Israel criminality and that Israel's outstretched hand for peace and its humanitarian record are globally underappreciated. You take interesting enough, you take natural uh, um, catastrophes happening around the world, like uh, in uh, Florida today, in uh, various uh, unfortunate natural uh, happenstances that injured a population in other countries. Israel's among the first to send crews from Israel to help in these other countries. I remember about a year ago, a uh, a tall building, an apartment building, collapsed in Florida, and the first among the first work rescue workers to get there were from Israel, from the Israeli government. Israel has keeps crews in readiness to go around the world to help others, and that's I don't know how many countries do that. The uh, now. It is true that we are surrounded by radical Islam with an Iranian nuclear bomb, uh, maybe within the next few months coming into existence. The uh, Arab gangs are chipping away at Israeli authority in the Galilee and Negev, and there are problems in the mixed Arab Jewish cities like uh, Lod and Acre, and Israel's sovereign control in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria requires significant reinforcement with the military unless it will be lost. Both Zionist and individualist discourses on the extreme left and racist and anti-democratic undercurrents on the extreme right are undermining our country's stamina and unity. They can see this in the upcoming election. The propaganda put forth by the parties in the upcoming election, I think, is disgraceful. There is an ideological, ideological debate within Israel, and it's sad the way it's expressed. There are income gaps. There's a, a cost of living is going up. There's social inequality. And these are dangers for sure. But taking all of this into account, Israel is a tremendous success story in so many ways. Life in Israel is full of meaning and delight. We have commitment, we have achievement, we have joy that you don't see in other countries. Life is exciting here, really exciting. I'm convinced that beyond habitual grumbling, which is like a 
the natural Israeli uh, way of acting, Israelis are neither crushed nor truly dispirited by all these challenges. Of course, we worry about the future and very, very deeply disappointed in the politicians. I think a lot of this has to do with the electoral system. You can't vote for an individual, yet can only vote for a party. And when you vote for a party, you get the whole ticket that the party puts up, even if you can only name a few at the top. I, I, by the way, I've experimented with this. I asked various friends of mine, who are you going to vote for? And some, of course, refuse to say, but that's their privilege. Others say, I'm voting for this and this party or this and that party. And I ask them, can you name the top 10 people on the party list? And they can't. They vote for the names that, that stick out individually. If people like Netanyahu, they vote for the Likud, even though they can't name the nine members of the list that follow uh, the head person. So I, I, that's a tremendous negative aspect about the Israeli electoral system. The, um, the, the, so beside all the habitual grumbling and the terrible political system, most Israelis are looking to a better future. There's all kind of people naysayers, boycotters, detractors, radicals, ruffians, anti-Semites. Despite all of that, Israelis are, Israel is growing, the people are achieving, they're creating, and they're producing and advancing. Is, Israelis have ample reason to reject defeatist outlooks. We, we really ought to cultivate a mindfulness that emphatically explains we have faith in the future. We don't have blind faith, but the kind of faith that sewers were not helpless, we're stronger than all our enemies, and many Israelis who believe in some form of divine providence. It's very interesting, by the way, uh, I have friends and co-workers who, who claim that they're not religious, but they go to the synagogue uh, on Yom Kippur, and they have a Seder on Pesach. They do a lot of things that are essentially are religious things, even though they claim they're not religious. And I always find this an interesting challenge when I, uh, when someone tells me that they're not religious, I ask them, uh, do you believe in God? And most people say yes, but I don't believe in all the, uh, all the trivia associated with religion, which is okay. That's a question of education, and that's one of the reasons why we have to improve the education system in Israel. People are loyal Israelis, but they don't really know what it means to be a Jew. Many people, certainly not all the people. Um, someone quoted the late uh, chief rabbi, of the British Empire, uh, Lord uh, Dr. Lord Jonathan Sachs, who wrote that the Jewish people have been around for longer than almost any other. We have known our share of suffering, and we are still here, still young, still full of energy, still able to rejoice and celebrate and sing. Jews have walked more often than most through the valley of the shadow of death that they lost neither their humor nor their hope. 
Faith does not mean believing six impossible things before breakfast, nor is faith certainty. It is the courage to live with uncertainty. That's what faith really is. Faith does not mean seeing the world as you would like it to be. It means seeing the world exactly as it is, yet never giving a hope that we can make better by the way we live. The, uh, the operative, operative key words we need to drill into our heads and the minds of our children are hope, realism, positivity, and proportion. This is, this is not meant to make us apathetic or ignorant about the challenges ahead or about the realities of life. But we want to be determined. We have the mental poise and the faith and the patience to overcome them. It's simple, it is simple to be a pessimist. Uh, alarmism is an easier sell than optimism, and fear can be fiercer than faith. Unfortunately, politicians campaigning for election here in Israel take advantage of these things. So we shouldn't enfeeble ourselves by listening to the politicians. So summing up, if you will, we're still in the first three weeks of the new year, a time to really look at ourselves, to look at our society, and I think we can, we can have a very positive attitude when we see where we are, where we were 75 years ago, and where we were 85 years ago. When, for example, to be in Europe, a Jew in Europe, just to be a Jew, man, woman, child, religious, not religious, just to be a Jew was a crime punishable by death. And look where we are now. And those of us who have lived through that period can really thank God that we had what's called in Hebrew the schut, the privilege to see the nation of Israel arise from the ashes. There's no doubt we have a lot of problems ahead. But I think we are in a situation where we can handle those problems. And so I, that, I think that is really the message of this time of the year, the time between New Year and the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a time to look at ourselves, look where we were before, look where we are now, and, and look forward to what we can really and truly be. I want to switch um, subjects now and say uh, uh, something out a subject which is really not in the headlines, and it has to do with the Russian Jews. The uh, if anyone, if any Jewish community asked the rabbis there whether they should make uh, aliyah to Israel under the current circumstances. The, the vast majority are told by the rabbis there uh, to leave. The, uh, the a rabbi there by the name of Baruch Gorin uh, is a member of the Chabad movement, and uh, he's not the chief rabbi. The chief rabbi in Russia is uh, Rabbi Beryl Lazar. But the fact that a rabbi would say such a thing, that people should leave Russia, publicly explains that Russia is in a very different place since Putin decided to draft men over the age of 18. 
apparently the war in uh, in the in the Crimea against uh, the Ukraine wasn't going well. They decided to draft 300,000 more men. So people are leaving Russia. Most of those who have left or who plan to leave are people that have boys around the, the age of the draft or where the father of the family may be of draft age. What's happening is that particularly these Jewish families, not only Jews, also non-Jews, are scared and frightened that the borders will be closed. So it's interesting. Uh, almost all the young Jewish men are trying to leave Russia. They are all either about to leave or they have left already. The, because at the moment it is not forbidden to leave Russia, but there are no restrictions, but the, it's, apparently there will be the, um, restrictions shortly. And ask whether the Jewish agency is able to properly handle the situation. Well, by the way, there is a court case against the Jewish agency in Russia. The, uh, the question is, can the Jewish agency, which continues to operate in some form and is still functioning, their, their activities reduced, but on the other hand, a lot going on from their perspective. There yet there are two major difficulties. There is a problem with outbound flights from Moscow to Israel, and therefore it's difficult for people to make Aliyah. There's simply not, a, not enough flights. Another problem is many Russians that immigrate to Israel aren't permitted to open accounts in Israeli banks because of the sanctions against Russia. So it's a rather interesting situation. Someone has pointed out uh, I saw it in the paper that someone remained uh, without a name. There's, there are two approaches about uh, Russian Jews on the subject of Aliyah. The first approach says, don't talk with us about leaving the mother in Russia, motherland. These two are trying to show they even are more loyal than the average Russian citizen. That's one approach. The second approach is, according to an official of the agency, the Jews want to look for a way out of Russia, so the community is pretty much divided. Another interesting trend in the Russian Jewish community is Jews who have recommitted to their roots. According to a senior official, the Jewish agency has seen a dramatic increase in requests to sign up for Jewish summer camps and Sunday schools that are operated by the Jewish agency. The sign-up rate is, according to this official, the highest been in the past decade. So the question is, how do you explain this sudden rise of people who want to identify as Jews? So the Jewish agency official said, those who are already decided to stay understand that they must show themselves and their children that they belong to the Jewish community in a more active way. These Jews feel it's necessary to show they're rooted in the Russian Jewish community. They're not leaving the country, but they want their Jewish roots to be deeper. And I think that's a very interesting phenomenon that you couldn't have predicted. By the way, here in uh, Israel, the integration and Aliyah minister has requested a one billion Israeli shekels and received approval for only 90 million in urgent funds for these new Russian olim. Expectations are tens of thousands of Russian Olim will be coming to Israel in the next few months.
In the short term, the government will be credited with the quality of resources and services put into absorption of lien and allocation of resources. So the, the long-term effect of Russian and Ukrainian aliyah in the coming year is something nobody can predict, but it's an interesting phenomenon. I'll be back after the break. This is Jay Shapiro again. I want to say a few words about Israeli high tech. Keep in mind that Israel is a country that has no natural resources. The only natural resource is the people. So if the people can produce and develop industry and society, then we've done the right thing. The past year has been great for the development of innovation technologies in Israel. The numbers show that at the end of 2021, there was a record high in the money raised within the high-tech sector, $25 billion, representing a 136% increase over the year before 2020 and a tenfold increase in startup capital raised over the five previous years. Now, Tel Aviv has 32% of the tech companies in the country, so it's the nation's high-tech capital. Tel Aviv has seen very impressive growth. Last year alone, saw a record-breaking $20 billion in capital raised by Tel Aviv-based tech companies, according to a recent report published by Tel Aviv Municipality Center for Economics and Social Research. The mayor of Tel Aviv, Ron Hodai, celebrated the city's rapid growth, and he said, and I quote, in the past year, I have visited a variety of tech companies in Tel Aviv, from new startups developing groundbreaking technologies to scale-up companies with products that are already widely used around the world. The creative spirit of the city of Tel Aviv has never stopped innovating, imagining, and developing I believe that the ideas born here today will change the world tomorrow. That's the mayor of Tel Aviv. Now, all the money flowing into Israel's high-tech sector is indicative of the growing faith that investors have in the potential held by Israel's startups and their tech solutions. As a result of the expanding amount of capital being introduced into the ecosystem, more and more startups are finding themselves in a position where the best next step, step is to use their cash flow for growth and expansion, or what's called scaling up. So many companies are scaling up, in fact, that some experts are suggesting that Israel is undergoing an evolution. Israel used to be called the startup nation, and now it could be called the scale-up nation. 
if you look at the success of Israeli companies, you realize that there's been a kind of shift of scale up nation. If you look at what's happening in Israel, you'll see that more and more companies have led venture capital firms to good or excellent return their investment. This is not just attributed to luck. The investors realize that this is the best source for talent. Israel is known for its talent. You can actually say the talent of the people is Israel's only natural resource. So the startup nation, uh, and the scale-up nation, I guess, what kind of technologies are pushing it forward? Israel's high-tech sector is as broad as it is saturated, which is to say, very broad. So covering each specific field would be better suited for a book than an article or a, re a report on the radio. Here are just a few startups representing some of the most interesting fields of technology that Israel is innovating in. For example, food technology. Over the past decades, cow's milk monopoly on the white stuff to put in your coffee market has been challenged by quite a few contenders, which is interesting from soybeans and almonds to rice and oats, milk alternatives have popped up and have a reasonable amount of market share driven by a few different factors. Some are health related, some are related to the environment, and some even just due to a preference of flavor. While the number of alternatives continues to increase, there's no denying that most consumers prefer that cow milk. However, several companies within Israel's food tech sector are working to create something that captures the best of, world, of both worlds. Milk that is identical, identical to cow's milk on a cellular level but without requiring the industrial farming system currently in place. Now, there's a company here, believe it or not, it's called Remilk. Uh, it is essential for the future of our planet that we liberate the food chain from dependency on animals, according to them. So how do they do that? They do it by crafting real dairy that tastes and feels the same, minus the cow. The, the company doing this is called Remilk, and the, uh, the, the company's fermentation-based technology creates a product that is very attractive to investor, investors. Believe it or not, talk about numbers, Remilk has raised over $130 million dollars and is currently building the world's largest precision fermentation plant. They're doing it in Denmark, believe it or not, in order to scale up its production. Not only are re-milk products cleaner and significantly more sustainable when compared to traditional dairy, but they're indistinguishable in taste, feel, and texture. Remilk also employs production methods that are radically more sustainable 
than traditional production methods used today. So what they are doing in the in the area of food tech is create something that's like it ain't milk, but it's like milk, and it's worth a lot of money. So that's as far as food technology. Now let's take a look at climate technology. This is fueled by the understanding that climate change is becoming a real pressing issue in the public consciousness. So if it's, if it's a pressing issue in the public consciousness, then it therefore automatically becomes a pressing issue on investors' portfolios. Israel's climate tech sector is rapidly gaining momentum. Among the many solutions that are being developed in the, in the solar and hydrogen power, there is a company called Alrun, it's Precision Agriculture, and, and the new milk mentioned a moment ago, one of the biggest innovations within the sector today comes a company called UBQ Materials, which is an Israeli startup that converts unsorted household waste, including all the organic stuff that doesn't typically recycle, into a post-consumer recycled thermoplastic, which can be used to manufacture all kinds of durable products. That thermoplastic is a way more environmentally friendly alternative to PVC and other polymer-based plastics which recycle poorly and don't they have the greatest track record in keeping landfills empty. So this company called UBQ, they have a product that's revolutionary in that it's 100% recyclable and it comes in raw material pellets that are comparable with already existing plastic molding infrastructure in factories around the world. So it's a practical alternative for companies wishing to keep making plastic products, but without that messing, killing the planet stuff. Every product can be reimagined to have a big environmental impact with simple material requirements. By replacing oil-based plastics with UBQ in, in their conference infrastructures, they're demonstrating that events as well as the large building and construction industry can serve as engines of a circular economy. So I've mentioned uh, milk. I've mentioned uh, getting away doing something not like plastic. And then I want to talk a, a word about medical technology. The medical tech sector is one of the fundamental building blocks of Israel's high-tech success. They, uh, they have gastric bypass alternatives that are surgery-free. You don't have to cut into the body. They have 3D-printed cornea implants a toilet seat that checks out your your urine and uses artificial intelligence to tell you whether you've got a urinary tract infection. That, 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 I find this the most interesting of all the technologies. Your toilet becomes a, an analyzer 
of uh, whether or not you have a urinary tract infection. So imagine, you know, who would have thought uh, before I read about this that there is a high-tech uh, first-class uh, toilet seat. So uh, uh, one of the most bizarre, in a good way, startups offering a medical innovation is something called Spotted Early, a company that detects early signs of cancer by leveraging one of the most valuable resources of the planet, which is dogs. People have told stories for decades about dogs that have detected cancer in their owners purely by sense of smell. In fact, research has shown that that the, the, the theory that... Um, that four furry legs uh, uh, can do this. The company's technology is based on dogs' profound ability to smell what re refers to as the cancer odor. All customers need is to put on a special mask made by this company called Spotted Early, breathe for a few minutes, then package up the mask and ship it to the company's lab and uh, within their detection facility, several dogs are trained to sniff the scent in samples. The, uh, a, uh, upon sniffing cancer, the dogs give all certain body language cues, which are picked up on an AL1 monitoring system. Following the scanning process, the company is able to detect and alert patients of the presence of cancer in their bodies with just a few days. The breath test can detect the presence of several different cancers in one person's body because each body has its own unique smell. Lung, prostate, breast, colon cancer, and that's what they have so far. So according to the CEO of this company, the statistics speak for themselves. Nine out of 10 cancer patients who discovered the disease early will survive. In contrast, unfortunately, nine out of 10 who discovered late will not survive. The ability to combine technology with a dog's developed sense of smell to create an accessible and accurate test that covers many different cancers will significantly increase the number of people who get tested regularly. It will contribute to the saving of many lives. Of all, by the way, of all these high-technology things, this is the one that really makes the biggest impression on me. That is actually using the dog's ability to smell and tell whether you have some kind of cancer. So these, these things are unbelievable. Who, until I saw this article about this high tech, I would not have, I would have something out of uh, science fiction. So uh, the, the growth of the high tech sector may be outspaced only by, or outpaced I should say, only by the country's rapidly expanding fiber optic internet infrastructure. So Israel, it's unbelievable. Here you have a country which has no natural resources. No natural resources at all. The only natural resources I've said in the past is the is the ability of the people. And Israel is taking advantage of the ability of the people 
to go sky high in high tech. And, and as I said, it's one of the high tech capitals of the world, proper use of people. So uh, it's really something, and I'm not something we can really be proud of. It's something that the founders of Israel could never have imagined. As a matter of fact, most people, including myself, could, have, could not have imagined it five years ago. And today, the sky's the limit on what the imagination can turn into money. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Money, by the way, not just a question of money. All this high tech creates jobs, well-paying jobs. So it's really high tech in Israel is one of its strongest capabilities, and it keeps growing, thank heaven. Along these lines, I would say something that's related. As Israel grows and develops, uh, a, uh, a, the, the, uh, there's a powerful trend. Just as global Jewish communities were vital in building a Jewish state during the 20th century, really starting with the Zionist Congress at the end of the 19th century to the creation of Israel in the middle of the 20th century to the development of Israel now during the 21st century, the question that whether how much Israel will be vital for sustaining Jewish life outside of the country, not in Israel itself, during the 21st century. So there are organizations that offer young Jewish adults an opportunity to come here, participate in programs, which they'll study here and they volunteer on fellowships. And what happens is they can go back to their communities outside of Israel and strengthen them. The, their uh, a report was uh, put out recently talking about this. Turns out there are close to 3,000 young American Jews here studying. They're not interested in Aliyah, which is a problem unto itself, but they'll go back and they'll strengthen the communities uh, back where they come from. The um, they will live a deeply, more deeply engaged Jewish life. They'll be strongly connected and advocate for Israel and be devoted supporters of their local Jewish communities. So this is interesting. You bring people here not to get them to come on Aliyah. That's a story unto itself. The, uh, then they've done studies. They say there's there's several different kinds of young Jewish adults. Those who experience Israel on fellowships, those who attend short-term programs, and those who have never been to Israel. That's the Jewish youth, that's three kinds. And they've done studies of these groups, and really good studies. Long-term programs here in Israel for people from outside the country develop a support for Israel. It encourages greater support for Israel and deeper connections to Israelis and Jews around the world. 
So although there are people pushing for Aliyah, and I guess I'm one of them, the very fact that you can bring young people here, train them, get them to know what life in Israel is like, and getting to know more about what it means to be Jewish, it will strengthen the ties between Israel and Jewish communities around the world. And that is really important. The uh, Israel can be a transformative tool for Jewish engagement. And it's really important. I'll be back after the break. We're back with Jay Shapiro. We are now in the midst of the holiday of Sukkot, which is called Zman Simchatenu, the time of our happiness or enjoyment. But we had to remind ourselves of something that I didn't discuss last week, but uh, it's important. That is the Yom Kippur War, which is a war that changed Israel. In the early afternoon of October 6, 1973, that's the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, the armies of Egypt and Syria launched a coordinated surprise attack against Israel, which initiated a three-week-long war on two fronts, while the fighting ended with a very impressive Israeli battlefield victory it was the, the real result, thank God there was a military victory, but it left Israel shocked and traumatized. By the time the guns fell silent, the Yom Kippur War had caused 2,656 dead soldiers, 7,251 injured, 294 prisoners of war have been captured by the enemy, and all this in a country with a population of only 3.3 million. At that time, besides working in Israel aircraft, I also taught in a technology institute in the city of Holon, and I had 80 students, and I lost six students in that war. So it wasn't just the toll in death. The war was a huge psychological blow, inaugurating a period of national malaise. It followed the Six-Day War of 1967, when Israelis perceived their country as invincible, but the Yom Kippur War left them feeling vulnerable and despondent. I remember the time, the mood in the country. The problem was that in the aftermath of the victory in 1967, the Israeli society had developed a, a cockiness that led to several follies. The first folly was the assumption that the Arab states, knowing the futility of any attempted aggression against Israel, would never attack Israel. The, uh, the second mistake was to presume that even if the Arabs did attack, our army would nonetheless, nonetheless be able to swiftly block any advance and a counterattack expeditiously, repeating the successes of the Six-Day War. But that didn't happen. 
because Israel had underestimated badly its adversaries. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat understood that the Arabs could not vanquish the Jewish state in battle. Instead, he sought a limited war that would break the status quo, restore Arab pride, give the Israeli the Israel's a bloody nose, a begin a process in which Egypt regained its lost territories. Sadat was a brilliant, really a brilliant statistician. Tactician, I mean. He gambled it through a surprise attack and the use of advanced Soviet-supplied weaponry. He stood a decent chance of mitigating Israel's military support superiority, and it turned out he was quite correct. The war in 1967, which Israel's won within a week, was based on the Israeli Air Force's domination of the skies and the strength of Israel's armored columns. But by 1973, Egypt had new anti-aircraft, anti-tank weapons supplied by the Soviets. Shrewdly, Saddam's plan involved his forces crossing the Suez Canal and deploying in previously Israeli-controlled Sinai. While Israel could claim that after initial setbacks, our army successfully counterattacked, crossed over to the western side of the canal, and cut off Egypt's third army, and actually reached positions 100 kilometers from Cairo, Israel could still rightly maintain that the Israeli army had failed to dislodge the Egyptian military from Sinai. That was on the Sinai front. On the Syrian front in the Golan, the Israeli counteroffensive brought the Israeli army within 30 kilometers of Damascus, but Israel's gains were hard fought, and the Syrian forces, augmented by the presence of Iraqi and Jordanian units, fought Israel very hard. The Arab strategy in the Yom Kippur War involved a crucial non-military component, the use of the oil weapon. Arab petroleum producers embargoed exports to countries perceived as supporting of Israel. With then near-total dependence on Middle East oil, governments around the world adopted positions designed to appease the Arabs. Now, what happened in Israel, the onset of the ceasefire saw the eruption of an unprecedented wave of protest over the government's handling of the war. And this led to the establishment of what was called the Agronaut Commission, an independent national inquiry to invest the army's failings in the lead-up and during the conflict, headed by a Supreme Justice Supreme Court Justice named Agronaut. The commission released its interim report in April 1974, called for the dismissal of the ID Chief of Staff, David Elazar, who the commission concluded held personal responsibility for failing to see the approaching war 
and for the Israeli army lack of preparedness. Al-Lazar was disgraced. He was a young man, I think he was in his 50s. He died of a heart attack two years after the report was issued. In addition, the head of military intelligence, a general named Eli Zira, was forced out, the commission finding him negligent of duty. His erroneous assessment of an Arab attack was a low probability. He said it was low probability of attack, and Israel was essentially unwarned about the combined Egyptian and serious attacks. The head of the Southern Command, General Shmuel Gorin, was also dismissed for failing to fulfill his duties. He went into self-imposed exile and he, in the Central African Republic, returned to Israel only intermittently until his death in 1991. The interesting, the Agronaut Commission decision was not to hold the political echelon accountable. The only accountability was in the military. So this added new energy to the demonstrations, demanding the resignations of the Prime Minister Golda Meir and the Defense Minister Moshe Dayan, and both left their posts in June 1974. I remember all of these things which I've just narrated, I remember very, very clearly. At that time, Golda Meir was 76 years old. He's one of, she was one of the first women leaders of a country, and she never, at her age and after her resignation, she never returned to active politics. Dayan did that so. He served as foreign minister in Menachem Begin's first Likud government. So, the Yom Kippur War also inadvertently catapulted Yitzhak Rabin to the premiership. He was Israel's ambassador to Washington at the time, so he wasn't part of the leadership who made the mistakes of 1973. And so the Labor Party chose him to replace Golda Meir. Unfortunately, in November 1995, 20 years later, he was murdered uh, by a Jewish terrorist. Furthermore, we'll talk about politics. Dayan's resignation saw Shimon Peres elevated to the defense ministry. Peres would remain a key player on the Israeli political scene. He held the position of prime minister twice, became president and till the end of his presidency in 2014. The war also enhanced the status of Ariel Sharon, who would be elected prime minister in 2001. What made Sharon really famous was the fording of the Suez Canal and the advance into Egypt. That pretty much cemented his status as Israel's preeminent battlefield commander. The, by the way, at that time, a photo was taken of Sharon. He was wounded, and he was wearing a bandage on his head. And that became one of the iconic Im images of that war. 
and also politically, the war was the beginning of the end for the Labour Party hegemony. Labour had continually led Israel from the 1948 when Israel was created, and in, in, in 1969 it was very, very popular. Um, in uh, uh, Golda Meir in 1969, her party received 56 seats compared to the right-wing Begin's 26 seats. In contrast, immediately following the war, there were elections December 1973, labor re reduced to 51, and the Likud jumping to 39. By 1977, Likud was triumphant with 43 seats. The labor's 32. That became as known as the Mapach, which uh, translated uh, literally means the turnover. The Labour Party had been in power so long, no one thought it could ever be pushed out of power. From a historical perspective, the Yom Kippur War was also the harbinger of Israeli-Egyptian peace, beginning with the disengagement agreement in January 1974, and consummated in the Peace Treaty of 1979. Undoubtedly, the war also began a much more critical approach by the Israeli public toward political leaders. The uh, interesting, <coughs> if you could look for a silver lining in that war, the war did not just herald the Israel-Egyptian peace, but it also spurred a healthy public skepticism of its leadership, which is an essential for democracy. So I apologize to the listeners for not bringing this up uh, a week earlier, the time of the Yom Kippur War, but I waited until I could gather my thoughts and could gather the facts so that I could talk about the war that changed Israel. The only thing that left that changed Israel, I, I spoke earlier about the fact that Israel is a high-tech giant. I spoke about the war that changed Israel. I think the only thing left which would really be good for Israel's future would be to change the nature and the character of the electoral system. Right now, when you go to the polls here in Israel, you cannot vote for an individual. You can only cast the vote for an entire party. An entire party, and they sometimes you have a list of 120 people. The Israeli electoral system is something I've spoken about before, and it is something. And I'm going to I'm going to repeat now, just for a few moments, to the listeners how the system works and how terrible it is. There are 120 seats in the Israeli Knesset, Israeli Congress. Then, now each party puts up a list. They can have up to 120 names on it. Many people are given the honor of being placed on the list 
even there's no chance that they'll ever be elected. If you're number 100 on the list, you certainly are never going to see the inside the Knesset as a member. The problem is that when you vote for a list, you get the whole list in one vote. You can really say it's an electoral bargain. For your one vote, you get 120 names. There is no representation on a local level. You do not have a congressman representing your district to whom you can go if you have some kind of complaint or need help. And I had that experience in the United States. On several occasions, I was in need of the uh, help of the, my congressman for one reason or another. And by the way, it was interesting. Uh, uh, this is an aside, but I find it very interesting. Uh, I was registered in the States as nonpartisan. In other words, I wasn't registered as a Democrat, nor was I registered as a Republican or anything else. I was registered as not belonging to a political party. Of course, I could vote. I could vote for anybody I wanted, but I was not essentially a member of a party. So the first time I had, I needed the help of my congressman for some issue, I think it had to do with the day school that I was uh, involved with. And I went to see my congressman, and the first thing he did was look up the records to see whether or not I was a Democrat. Uh, my congressman was a Democrat, and he really gave me a cold shoulder. So... I registered as a Democrat, and I came back to him with the same problem, and this time he responded. So that was the importance of being registered as a member of a party, particularly if the congressman who represented your district was of that party. That's, that's interesting in and of itself. In Israel, you do not have that. In Israel, you vote for a list of up to 120 members on the list. What I find interesting, and I've done this as a personal research project, I say to my friends, uh, who, to whom are you going to vote? Which party are you going to vote for? Now, give me, if they weren't, then they want to answer. I generally don't tell anybody who I want to vote for. But even if I don't ask them who they're going to vote for, I ask them what party they lean toward. And they'll say one party or another, they could, or Labor, or, uh, or Shas, or what have you. And I would say to them, name the first ten persons who appear on that party list. Absolutely no one, and I've asked many people, I've probably asked the whole population of the country if I had time, who was the, what are the names of the first ten people for whom you were voting? And the answer is they don't know. They name they may know a few names at the top, and even then they don't even know what order they appear on the list. And unless and until the situation is changed here in Israel, where you can vote for a local member of Knesset who represents you, then we're always going to have the kind of problem we have now, which is we are about to have our fifth election in the last four years. 
which means that millions and millions of dollars are going to be, going to be given to the parties to campaign for the election, millions of dollars which could be used for other reasons, for social reasons, for defend, for any reason you want, but it's wasted because it goes to the parties and you have to vote for a party list and you do not have a, a member of Knesset to whom you can turn because he represents you. Such a thing does not exist in Israel. The members of Knesset only owe their allegiance to the leaders of the party who put their names on the list. And that is the basic problem of the Israeli democracy. You vote, but you vote for a wholesale list. Anyhow, that's the general problem. That's for this week. Thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.